Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. After his mother Mary had betrothed to, was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her, till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. In my library, I have a fascinating book entitled, Why Clocks Run Clockwise and Other Imponderables. If you have an inquisitive mind, if you hate to admit that you can be stumped, if it's hard for you to utter the words, I don't know, then you would love this book. Its author, David Feldman, and his research staff answered 232 bizarre and baffling mysteries. Feldman calls them imponderables. Here's a sample of the imponderables that he tackles in his book. Why don't people get goosebumps on their faces? One of the great mysteries of life right there. How do manufacturers keep raisins from falling to the bottom of cereal boxes? Ever thought about that? Why in any box of assorted chocolates are the caramels square, the nougats rectangular, the nuts oval, and the creams always circular? Why do donuts have holes? Here's one for you. Why are there 18 holes on a golf course? 18. Why do you have to dry clean raincoats? A mystery. How and why do horses sleep standing up? Why can't hair grow on a vaccination mark? Inquisitive minds want to know. And why are the flush handles on a toilet always on the left side? And I guarantee you a bunch of you will go to the toilet after the service just to make sure that they're on the left side. If you've ever asked any of these baffling questions and get the book, Feldman will give you the answers. And yet he also admits that there are some imponderables that despite his extensive research remain a riddle. These expert stumpers he calls frustratables. And in my opinion, the Bible is a book full of frustratables. The triune nature of God. How can God be three yet one? Creation, ex nihilo, or out of nothing. How does that work? The parting of the Red Sea, manna sent from heaven, 
Joshua's long day, Jesus' multiplication of the loaves and fish, his walking on water, the raising of his friend Lazarus, our Lord's resurrection and ascension. People have pondered these events now for centuries and have tried to explain in natural terms how they occurred. And yet they remain as mysterious today as when they happened. And there's one biblical imponderable, I mean a true frustratable, that stretches the limits of our logic further than all the others. It is the miracle of the virgin birth. How a woman who had never experienced sexual relations with a man could possibly conceive a child. The great reformer Martin Luther, he once wrote, in a rather tongue-in-cheek manner, I might add, he said, the incarnation consists of three miracles. The first, that God became man. The second, that a virgin was a mother. And the third, that the heart of man should believe this. Even with the tremendous advances in the field of reproductive science, fertility drugs, and in vitro fertilization, and test tube babies, and cloning, etc., etc., nothing helps us understand the mechanics of the virgin birth. It doesn't even come close. The advances in obstetrics are marvelous, but they're explicable. The virgin birth is more than marvelous. It's miraculous. You know, when we see a football player dive and catch a pass that others couldn't reach, or a basketball player make an off-balance shot, we call it a miracle, but it's not. Or maybe we undergo a medical procedure that 50 years ago was unimaginable. We call that a miracle, but technically it's not. A new gizmo gets labeled a miracle, but in the truest sense of the word, it's not. A real miracle is a phenomenon that's impossible to explain in scientific terms. It goes beyond the scope of science. It can't be replicated in a petri dish or studied under a microscope. It depends on God's direct intervention. Miracles are not just improvements in technology or biological breakthroughs. A miracle usurps natural laws to accomplish a divine purpose. Miraculous events baffle the intellect. They drive us to our knees. They force us to face our limits. They bring us to the brink of understanding and the beginnings of faith. The inquisitive and technical and mechanical and analytical mind has to give up in the face of a miracle. One can never figure out what only faith can grasp. Tertullian, the second century Latin apologist, he once commented, I believe because it is absurd. It was the fact he couldn't figure God out. His omniscience, the incarnation of Jesus, even his second coming that drew Tertullian to faith. And I agree. If God's ways can be deciphered by my little pea brain, he's not much of a God. If the God I serve doesn't at times frustrate my thinking, he's not a God worth serving. Philosopher Mortimer Adler, who became a Christian at age 82, he made this comment. He said, I believe Christianity is the only logical, consistent faith in the world. But there are elements to it that can only be described as mystery. 
My chief reason for choosing Christianity was because the mysteries were incomprehensible. What's the point of revelation if you could figure it out yourself? If it were wholly comprehensible, then it would be just another philosophy. See, a miracle puts life back in perspective. A miracle reminds me of who God is and shows me who I am. Up against a miracle, my wisdom seems pretty naive. My intellectual prowess so shallow. My mental powers very weak. While God appears more godlike. See, Christmas is a time for humbling our hearts and bowing our heads and marveling at a miracle. A virgin conceived. The Bible says the Word became flesh. God added humanity to His deity. God became man. Just think of it. The ancient of days became a child of time. The infinite became an infant. The creator, a young kid. And how did it happen? Well, the information is limited, but here's what we know for sure. The Spirit of God overshadows the virgin's womb. The seed of the spiritual impregnates the human egg. The divine seed is planted into the human soil. The human and divine mingle and blend and become one. It's a miracle of the highest order. And that's as far as I dare to delve. To me, it's inappropriate to let my mind probe any further. The mechanics of how Jesus was born is holy ground. Remember, from the blazing bush on the side of Mount Sinai, God told Moses, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place you stand is holy ground. Well, the virgin birth is also a reason to slip off our sandals. It's not for us to scrutinize. At this, we should stand in awe of God's omnipotence and His wisdom. Christmas is not a time to be analytical. It's a time to gawk at God. You see, the angel that came to Joseph knew that he was a man of true faith. He didn't need an explanation to believe. All Joseph needed was a reminder of God's promises. And this is why the angel quotes the guarantee that God gave the nation in Isaiah 7 verse 14. Originally, the promise was to the kings of Judah, of which Ahaz was one. At the time of Ahaz, Judah and Jerusalem were under siege by invading armies. King Ahaz was petrified. Isaiah came and he assured King Ahaz that God was in control and that God would deliver the Jews. And to prove it, Ahaz, uh, uh, Isaiah tells Ahaz to ask, to ask God for a supernatural sign. He says in Isaiah 7 verse 11, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it, either in the depth or in the height above. This is so amazing to me. Isaiah challenges Ahaz to ask God for something so outlandish, so supernatural, that there would be only one explanation, that God was in it. God, have the moon brush the earth or alter the earth's orbit and roll back the clock. I mean, something really outlandish. God, let Georgia Tech beat Georgia in football one year. I mean, something supernatural. 
Name the most frustratable, mind-boggling feat you can think of for God to confirm his promise. And he'll do it. That's what he says to Ahaz. And yet Ahaz was reluctant to ask. In fact, that's when God blows his mind. The prophet announces that God will initiate his own sign. That God will choose a sign far more bizarre than anything Ahaz could have dreamed up. Or us, for that matter. Isaiah tells him, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. If God can enable a virgin girl to conceive a child, he can get Ahaz out of hot water. And Isaiah's son ultimately became a rallying point, not only for Ahaz, but for the kings who would follow him. The entire Davidic dynasty was assured of its survival with the miracle that was finally fulfilled when Mary, a virgin from Nazareth, conceived a son and named him Jesus. Yet please beware, there are liberal scholars today that have tried to water down this prophecy of a virgin birth. They note that the Hebrew term Alma, translated in Isaiah as virgin, can mean a young girl, which is true. In Hebrew, Alma can refer to a young girl of marriageable age, just a young girl. But the word Alma is used seven times in the Old Testament, and in four of the seven cases, the context of the passage makes it certain that the term is referring to a true virgin. In two of the remaining three examples, though it's less clear, it also probably refers to virgin maidens. But here's the real clincher. Remember, this birth was to be a sign to Ahaz. What kind of a sign is it for a young girl of marriageable age to conceive a son? Seems to be happening a lot here at Calvary Chapel lately. I mean, that can be an everyday occurrence. No big deal. A sign is an extraordinary event. It's something unusual. It attracts attention. It indicates that God is up to something special. If there was any doubt, Isaiah meant a literal virgin, a woman who's never had sexual relations with a man. It's cleared up a little later. Four centuries after Isaiah wrote, 285 years before Jesus was born, the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And guess how the translators rendered Isaiah 7 verse 14. They translate the Hebrew word Alma with the Greek word Parthenos, which means absolutely, clearly, unequivocally, a girl who's never had sexual relations. And here's the icing on the cake. When the gospel writer Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14 and writes it down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he also uses the word Parthenos. Obviously, when Isaiah said, a virgin shall conceive, that is exactly what he meant. And there are other Old Testament passages that affirm God's promise of Messiah's virgin birth. The miracle is spoken of in a number of different biblical passages. Genesis 3 anticipates the ultimate conflict between Satan and the Savior. God speaks to the serpent Satan in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Satan will bruise Jesus, but Jesus will inflict on Satan a mortal wound. And that's exactly what happened on the cross. Oh, Jesus got a heel bruise, but in comparison, Satan got his head crushed, his skull crushed. Jesus absorbed a bruise to win the ultimate battle. But notice in Genesis 3.15 how God refers to Jesus. He is the seed of the woman. This is the only occasion in Scripture where a woman is said to possess a seed. The man supplies the seed, not the woman. Obviously, Genesis 3.15 is predicting a unique, a supernatural birth. Also consider Jeremiah 31, verse 22. For the, woman has cre- for the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall encompass a man. The Hebrew rabbis, writing before the coming of Christ, they understood this verse to refer to a birth by miraculous means. One rabbi, he explained the birth as follows. Messiah is to have no earthly father. Another Jewish rabbi rendered the verse, The birth of Messiah will be without defect. The birth of the Messiah will be like that of no other man. Here's a third rabbinical comment on Jeremiah 31 verse 22. The birth of Messiah will be like the dew of the Lord as drops on the grass without the action of a man. Again, this is provocative. Jewish scholars, before the time of Jesus, understood that the prophet Jeremiah had predicted the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And understand, the virgin birth is not only prophesied in the Old Testament, it's also essential to New Testament doctrine. If Jesus was the bastard child of Mary's infidelity, or even the legitimate offspring of her marriage to Joseph, rather than be God, Jesus would have been a mere mortal, a common sinner like you and me. If Jesus were not God, he could not have been our Savior. Understand, sin is hereditary. It's inherent. It gets passed down. Every person is born with a nature that's stubborn and rebellious and hostile against God. It's not our sin that makes us a sinner. We're a sinner because of our sin. We're born with it. Humans are selfish from the womb. And the Bible is clear that humans inherit their sin from their dad, not their mom. Romans 5 tells us that in the Garden of Eden, both Adam and Eve sinned against God. But sin passed down through Adam, not Eve. Thus the reason we're born into sin, the reason every human is wicked from the womb, is due to his distant daddy, Adam. When he sinned, it was the first Adam bomb. And its fallout has been felt ever since. Yet because Jesus was born of a virgin, he had no human father. Since his father was God, Jesus bypassed the rebellious, sin-stained bloodline of Adam. Jesus' humanity came from his mother Mary, while his spiritual nature came from the Holy Spirit. That means that Jesus may have had Mary's Jewish nose, maybe her black wavy hair, but he was born with God's divine nature. In Jesus, God became flesh. Jesus was born sinless. If he had been born into sin, even if he had lived a perfect life afterwards, he still would have died for his own sin, not for our sin. 
to die for us, to take our place, Jesus had to be guiltless, not only from birth, but in birth. The miracle that occurred in the womb of the young maiden enabled Jesus to be as human as his mother Mary, yet as sinless and divine as the eternal God. And this is why the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus are the underpinnings of all Christian theology. These are not optional doctrines. They're absolutely essential. Kick out the cornerstones and the whole house will come tumbling down. Without these vital points of faith, all Christianity becomes a house of cards. Without the virgin birth, Jesus is not the God-man. He's now a con-man. Our salvation becomes a sham. Never mind peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Forget Christmas is for kids. Take back the present. Spit out the eggnog. Ignore Christmas cheer and charity. There is no reason for the season if Jesus was not born of a virgin. Without the miracle of the virgin birth, our Lord Jesus is not who he says he is. Years ago, I watched a Christmas special on television. It was one of these fun-filled variety shows. It was hosted by a former DJ named Casey Kasin. Maybe you remember that name. But in his closing comments, he made this statement. Christmas used to be for Christians who worship Jesus. But today Christmas is for everyone who wants peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Well, when I heard that statement, I had a conniption. You know what a good conniption is, don't you? I almost choked on my eggnog. That one bogus statement ruined the whole show for me. I couldn't have disagreed more. The foundation of Christmas and Christianity are identical. It wasn't just any baby in that Bethlehem manger. God was in the manger. If it was just another child that Mary had laid in the manger, then the world is no better off than it was before his birth. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men would remain a pipe dream. Christmas without the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus might still be used as an excuse to party, but it would be of no reason to praise. The holiday we call Christmas without this special miracle would become a hollow day, not a holy day. And this is why Satan has worked so hard for so long to attack this vital doctrine. You see, Satan's strategy is twofold. He encourages us to doubt the truth of the virgin birth and the godhood of Jesus. And if doubt fails, he tries to distract. For if he can get us caught up in other stuff, we'll never consider the implication of these truths, which is the next best thing to doubting them. You see, even in Jesus' own day, Satan was already conjuring up doubts about his roots and his origin. In the Gospels, remember, enemies try to drape a shroud of suspicion over Jesus' parentage. Once the Jews, they were boasting that Abraham was their father. They thought you got to heaven through heredity. They claimed Abraham. But Jesus set the record straight. He says, if Abraham was your dad, then you would have mimicked his faith in God. And that's when the Jews mocked Jesus. In John 8, verse 41, they sneer. We were not born of fornication. We have one Father, God. But notice their insinuation. 
the Jews were suggesting that Jesus was born of illegitimate birth. Jesus goes on to tell them that God is his father and their father is the devil. He kind of set them straight. But obviously, from the early beginnings of Christianity, Satan tried his best to attach a sinful, shameful stigma to the birth of Jesus. Another attack was launched by the, in the, later in the first century by a heretical cult called the Gnostics. In fact, many of the extra-biblical books that you see recycled through the news today, like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel according to Judas, these were Gnostic writings that were known by the early church fathers and were roundly rejected. In fact, much of the New Testament was aimed at defending the Christian faith against the false assertions of Gnosticism. The term Gnostic comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And these Gnostics, they professed a special knowledge about God. They claimed, heretically so, that they had special insight. In essence, the Gnostics believed that God was revealed like sprinkling out pixie dust. That God had sort of been scattered throughout the universe. Thus, a little of God was in all things, in holy men of ages past, in the angels, in the mountains, in animals, in plants, even in man. Sort of what New Age thought today teaches. That God was in everything and in everywhere. That the divine pixie dust had been sprinkled across the vast universe. Thus, the Gnostics taught that there was nothing unique about Jesus. That he was just one of God's many revelations. A way to God, but not the way to God. And the early church stood staunchly against this heresy. In fact, in Colossians 2 verse 9, Paul takes aim at the Gnostics when he says, For in him, that is Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In short, God is no pixie dust. God is not sprinkled across time and space. No, the totality of God resides in one human body, the body of Jesus. Imagine the eternal, almighty God who overflows all time, all universes, compressed and compacted and encapsulated into a tiny baby's body. God became small. And that means if you want to find the revelation of God to mankind, there's only one place to probe. God has placed all the eggs of incarnation in one basket, or better yet, in one manger. All that God has wanted to say to you and me, he has said in our Lord Jesus. That first Christmas morning in Bethlehem, do you think anyone truly grasped, totally grasped the significance that God, the God who shares his glory with no one, the God who is so holy no man is allowed into his presence, that that same God lay sleeping in the straw. See, Satan encourages doubt. But when doubt fails, he tries to distract. And here's a sly maneuver. For what's the difference between ignoring a truth and doubting it? I mean, practically speaking, you can believe in the virgin birth and the deity of Jesus and yet ignore these truths. And are you any better off than the person who doesn't believe at all? I mean, neither person worships. 
Neither person carries out a commitment. Neither person bothers to obey. Neither the doubter or the ignorer really loves the Lord. If Satan can't get you to doubt the truth about Christmas, the next best thing that he'll do is to try to get you to ignore it. And I'm always amazed, surprised, at how successful Satan is at creating this indifference, especially at the one time of the year when our devotion should be at its peak. Too often, folks act like the residents of Bethlehem that first Christmas morning. God was in the manger. But the people closest to him were too busy with their mundane lives to go and see the king of the universe. You know, Christmas has been different at the Adams house the last few years. We, we suffered a tragic family loss that I don't talk much about. Every year, Kathy decorates and fills our house with Christmas cheer. And the centerpiece of our ornaments is the ceramic nativity that Grandma made. This year, it's sitting on the coffee table in the living room. It includes Joseph and Mary and shepherds and sheep and even a cow or two and a little manger, but no baby. A few years ago, Kathy announced that we had lost baby Jesus. When I heard the news, I was stunned. How does a pastor, no less, lose baby Jesus? But now, every time I sit down in that living room, I have this hollow feeling that settles over me. What's a nativity set without Jesus? We got Joseph and Mary and the shepherds, but who cares without Jesus? Without Jesus at the center, it's not Christmas. And the other day it hit me, our loss of Jesus wasn't a sudden disaster. See, our problem started years ago. We got lazy. We got a little nonchalant. And it finally caught up to us. When my boys reenacted the story each year, that ceramic baby got tossed around quite a lot, I might add. We even started letting the grandkids in on the action. And with a herd of toddlers in close proximity, who knows where Jesus was taken? We weren't as cautious as we should have been, and after a while, we finally lost him. And what happened to our ceramic baby Jesus can happen to the real Jesus. For as the years go by, you can become neglectful. Don't get so used to the storyline of Christmas that you lose its wonder and its delight. The baby in the manger was God. He was divine. It was God in that manger. His conception was a miracle. We should bow in worship, not just toss Jesus around. As the years go by, be careful that you don't misplace the miracle. It was God in that manger. One year, I was browsing our public high school's December calendar. It listed some pretty routine events. The day soccer players reported for their annual physicals, and a teacher's work day, and even a dugout club meeting. But the 25th of December was conspicuously blank. On that calendar. Imagine, it's okay to publicize a dugout club meeting, but not the Savior's entrance into the world. See, it's no secret that our secular world has taken Christ out of Christmas. But my question to you this morning is what about us? We who affirm our faith in the doctrine, are we as vigilant 
in practice. Author Joseph Stowell, he makes an interesting observation. Many of us have found our sensitivities insulted and our convictions offended as court rulings remove the nativity scenes from the laws, lawns of our city halls. It's far easier to object to that swipe of secularism than to realize that for years, many of us have been living through the Christmas season with figuratively no nativity scene on the front lawn of our lives. Caught up in the swirl and storm of the holiday, who of us has taken the time to proclaim Jesus? I'm sure your Christmas celebration this year will include parties and presents, but what about praise and proclamation? Do we really celebrate Jesus? In the classic of Charlie Brown's Christmas, everyone insists that our hero should have a big, brassy, flashy Christmas tree. Something that reflects the modern spirit, he's told. Yet there's this nagging feeling inside that causes him to believe that Christmas is more than superficial decorations. He refuses to capitulate to its commercialism. He, bears a bar- he buys a barren, scrawny, tiny tree. And at one point in the story, Charlie Brown screams, Can anybody tell me what Christmas is all about? And that's when his buddy Linus, with some verses from Luke chapter 2, takes him back to the basics and causes Charlie Brown to rediscover the true meaning of Christmas. I suggest that's good strategy for us. At its essence, Christmas is about a miracle. And though the mechanics of a miracle are imponderable, the meaning of a miracle is crystal clear. The virgin birth means that the baby laid in the manger is none other than God. Jesus was in that manger. And Jesus is God. See, Christmas is a time for two things. For stepping back and for stepping out. This is the time of year that we all need to step back and worship. You know, at Christmas, let's make time to contemplate a miracle. To allow ourselves to be smitten again with wonder and awe over an event that we'll never understand. I need to let the force of the Christian miracle, the Christmas miracle, whittle away at my high-mindedness at my haughtiness, at my know-it-all arrogance. Christmas is the holiday that humbles us. This year, let the miracle of Jesus' incarnation take you back to a simpler, a childlike faith. Faith, though you don't understand what God is doing. Faith, though you could never in a million years figure it out. Speaking of a childlike faith, I want to read to you some challenging thoughts this morning from my favorite Dr. Seuss. An excerpt from his book, On Beyond Zebra. He writes, Said Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell O'Dell to his very young friend who was learning to spell, The A is for ape, the B is for bear, the C is for camel, the H is for hare, the M is for mouse, the R is for rat, I know all the 26 letters like that. Through to Z is for zebra. I know them all well, said Conrad Cornelius O'Donnell O'Dell. So now I know anything anyone knows from beginning to end, from the start to the close, 
Because Z is as far as the alphabet goes. Then he almost fell flat on his face on the floor when I picked up the chalk and drew one letter more. A letter he had never dreamed of before. And I said, you can stop if you want with the Z because most people stop with the Z but not me. In the places I go, there are things that I see that I never could spell if I stopped with the Z. I'm telling you this because you're one of my friends. My alphabet starts where your alphabet ends. My alphabet starts with this letter called Yees. It's the letter I use to spell Yeezimatees. You'll be surprised what there is to be found once you go beyond Z and start poking around. So on beyond zebra, it's high time you were shown that you really don't know all there is to be known. How many of us live like we know it all? We stop at Z. We refuse to trust God when he does the unfamiliar. Or when what he does doesn't fit in with our frame of reference. Or he works in ways that we can't see or explain. Do you know anyone who's afraid to go with God beyond zebra? Realize, if this is you, you're never going to get anywhere with God. For God requires faith. Hebrews 11 verse 6 tells us, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. To know God personally, you have to trust Him beyond where you're able to trace Him. This is why Christmas is so therapeutic. It forces me beyond my own limitations and possibilities. And it prepares me for God's miracles. To be brought to my knees in simple faith and in absolute trust is good, good medicine for our souls. To be baffled once a year at Christmas is a blessing indeed. Sadly, many of us have been questioning God. Why has he done this in my life? Why does he allow that? Well, Christmas reels in that unhealthy curiosity. Christmas is a reminder that God doesn't owe us an explanation. And who's to say we could grasp it if he gave us one? But we can bow to his omnipotence and to his sovereignty. Christmas encourages me to rest my probing mind in God's loving arms. I have a motto I picked up several years ago. It reads, I love God because I know Him, but I adore Him because I cannot comprehend Him. Christmas is a time to ponder and praise, to go beyond Z. It's time to realize the glory and the grandeur and the greatness of the God we serve. He's greater than we thought. At Christmas time, we once again find ourselves standing on holy ground. Christmas is a time to step back and worship. But it's also a time to step out and witness. For despite the distractions Satan manufactures at Christmas, it's still the prime time of the year where people think about religious themes. At Christmas, hearts soften and spiritual sensitivities heighten. At Christmas time, even the hardest sinner considers a Savior. I may have told you this, but I have a friend who pastors the Calvary Chapel in Roanoke, Virginia. Bradley came to Christ at Christmas. Like the prodigal son, he had left home to sow his wild oats, but he was miserable. 
And one night, he turned on the TV. A Charlie Brown Christmas was on. And when Linus read Luke chapter 2 about the coming Savior, Brad says he fell to his knees, repented of his sinful ways, and was gloriously saved. A man's eternal destiny was altered, not by the preaching of Billy Graham, but Charlie Brown. That's why I'm saying it doesn't take much. It seems that God primes the pump of salvation at Christmas. I've heard it put, our world never comes as close to being in contact with its greatest hope as it does at Christmas time. We need to realize the Spirit of Christ still likes to take advantage of the Spirit of Christmas. Thus, this is the season for us to go on the offensive, to declare to our friends and neighbors that heaven has invaded earth, that God can be met in a manger. On that first Christmas, shepherds were in the fields when suddenly angels appeared and they announced the news that Messiah was born. They rushed to Bethlehem to locate the child and they worshiped the newborn king. Afterwards, Luke chapter 2, verse 17 says of the shepherds, Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And here, too, is our Christmas commission. In the words of Luke, they made widely known the saying. Let's also make our love for the Savior widely known. Christmas is a time for stepping back to think and worship. And it's also a time for stepping out to speak and to share our faith. It's for worship and witness, proclamation and praise. Let's adore the Christ this Christmas and let's announce to the world with the same enthusiasm as the shepherds, hey, that's God in that manger.